Hello, Pivoters. Welcome to Pivoting Out of EDU, your podcast designed to provide you with the inspiration, confidence, and strategies for making a pivot away from campus-based positions in education toward other opportunities. Hosts, Drs. Jamie Hoffman and Tom Stutter pivoted out of campus-based positions and are loving it. Now they are giving back and supporting others doing the same. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pivoting Out of EDU. I'm Tom Stutter. And I'm Jamie Hoffman. And today I'm really excited to invite uh, somebody to our show that has a wealth of experience in student affairs and has recently made the pivot out of student affairs into DEI work in the corporate level. Um, Vijay Pindakar, please say hello to our listeners. Hello, listeners. And hi, Jamie and Tom. Thanks for including me in this fabulous discussion. So Vijay was uh, a dean of students, and so you'll see a little bit of a um, sort of a theme this season where we have not just folks who were entry-level positions in student affairs, but we have many more folks who were in upper-level management or executive-level positions from student affairs. And so we're getting their sense and their take on the pivot as well. And so really excited to welcome Vijay to the show. Um, I've, um, I've, I've spoken with him once before back many moons ago when he worked at Cal State Fullerton, and when we decided... Uh, uh, to have a little bit more of a focus on management and executive leaders this year. He was the first person that came to mind. So uh, really excited and full transparency. While I have not worked with him, I did work with his sister, Sumi at USC. Um, and so I'm familiar with the family and really excited to, uh, to not only have Vijay, but also hopefully Sumi is out there listening to us. So Vijay, uh, let's just kick it off and, and get us started with uh, your background, what you did in your last campus-based position, or perhaps even the last couple of campus-based positions, and what made you ultimately look to change? Sure. Um, so my pathway through higher education, I think the through line um, of all the roles I held over 17 years, I think, was, um, was uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I started full-time in diversity education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison a long time ago in a coordinator level role, uh, very traditional, right? And then moved up the, the ladder uh, into assistant director, director, you know, AVP, dean of students kind of a thing. But uh, across the over 15 years I was doing that, I got a chance to um, delve into equity work either through diversity education and the, the ongoing uh, building of curriculum and the designing of pedagogy in order to transform hearts and minds around issues of inclusion, power, privilege, and oppression. I got to work in centers-based work where we actually try and create space and programs to allow marginalized and vulnerable communities to come into a greater sense of belonging. And then I got to uh, really spend an extended period of time in student success and graduation strategy work, looking at the, the, the numbers of communities who are underserved in higher education due to fundamental flaws in its design model, and how do we actually rethink enterprise strategy, use technology, use analytics to, uh, to restructure colleges and universities to make them sites of student success as opposed to sites of student displacement. And all of that led me to my final uh, role. I shouldn't say final. The, the previous role I held on campus, because we never know right, where, where our journey will take us. But I finished up my time in higher ed as the dean of students at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. And I also had a secondary role as presidential advisor on diversity and equity. And so 
the dean of students job was a mix of classic dean of students responsibilities around crisis management, emergency response, uh, health and wellness work. And then unique to Cornell, and the reason that I was drawn to the role is the dean of students was considered the lead university strategist for um, DEI and the student experience. And that was a pretty bold move for the largest Ivy League campus to take to make their DOS role explicitly about that. And that, that courage is what drew me to be interested in the opportunity. And I was there a little under four years and had a fabulous and very challenging time. Um, it, was, it was a challenging role to be the head of crisis and the head of diversity um, at a time when crisis and diversity were oftentimes inextricably linked. So yeah, that, that's a little bit of my arc in terms of my, my um, higher ed uh, career. Well, it seems definitely uh, natural that folks are going to be wondering, okay, it sounds like you ended up in a pretty fascinating position, both because of the two dynamics that you noted with crisis as well as um, equity and inclusion, but also, you know, being able to take a systemic look at things. So definitely wondering then. What what was sort of the catalyst to make you think about moving out of a campus-based position? And then sort of how did you find your first role out of that position? And if that's sure. where you are now, which I think it is, maybe you can yep. share a little bit more about what you do there. Sure, sure. So as to not bury the lead, I'll, I'll share. I currently serve as the inaugural Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at Zynga, which is a tech company. Um, I also have several other functions as a vice president in the company that I'm responsible for. I have university relations, learning and development, and social impact. So I'll get more to what I do now um, in the second half of answering your question. But in terms of reasons for departure, I think many of your listeners might resonate with what I share. I will be very candid here because I think that we need to model when possible um, some of that authenticity around how challenging aspects of higher education have become. And so I'm going to name it. Um, and uh, and I'll also talk about personal reasons for departure too, not just professional. But in, on the professional side, I began to feel, and this is idiosyncratic to me, this is not a judgment of anybody else's reality, but, but to, in my lived experience of the work, I began to feel like student affairs, higher education leadership changed pretty dramatically in the last five, six years. From my first decade in the field where we spent I would say the majority of our time, more than 50% of our time, thinking about developing emerging adults outside of the classroom and uh, pedagogical curricular and co-curricular investments that would result in things like self-authorship and, you know, meaning making and, you know, the, the kind of tenets of the field. And post-2014, 2015, and many, many higher ed leaders I've talked to and student affairs leaders I've talked to have resonated with this, there was a palpable shift and a and a year-over-year year cumulative shift towards more and more of the energy being spent on two tasks, which I came to actually have sort of um, visuals associated with them in my mind and in my heart. I felt like more and more of my work was either a fire extinguisher or a broom and dustpan. And the fire extinguisher was being relied upon, the Division of Student Affairs being relied upon to go to where the fire was and quote-unquote put it out, whether that be fraternity and sorority malfeasance of all kinds to Title IX issues to, uh, you know, inclusion flare-ups, right? Uh, somebody graffitied something in the library, you know, to 
health and wellness challenges, right? The rising acuity of mental health issues, you know, uh, all of all, just, it just became this sort of ever expanding juggernaut of firefighting. And on the other side was this broom and dustpan effect where the optics surrounding higher education changed. And somewhere along the way, problems that had been present on university campuses for decades, if not potentially centuries, that were historically understood as, well, that's just what's going to happen when students, when, when emerging adults live with you, then the shenanigans of 19-year-oldness are going to happen. And the tolerance for that in our society went way down. The risk tolerance associated with, you know, uh, in loco parentis, right? Um, you know, the, the, the relationship between a university and its students went way down. And universities started to get really beat up in the media over things students were doing that 10 years ago happened in, in, in abundance. And the media didn't really pick up on it that much. And so the amount of like scurrying around to try and quote unquote, clean up issues of student behavior that we frankly don't have locus of control over, but yet are held accountable to that, you know, so the, 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 the fire extinguisher and the broom and dustpan effect that emerged between 2014, 2015, and really kind of grew to epic proportions by the time I exited a year ago. So uh, September, 2020, I think really caused for me a uh, existential and and an ontological right a question of being what what why am I doing this and and what does it mean for me to be a leader in this space and over time in the years that I was leading at Cornell I started to find myself internally operating more and more from an extraordinarily rational paradigm of well I need this job because I am the primary earner for my family I have two small children and. You know, I'm able to add value for my boss, uh, who I adored and who was one of the best bosses I've ever had in higher education. And my team needs me. And all of this stuff that really functioned as my therapist so astutely pointed out as rationalizations for a flickering and slowly fading candle of passion and vocational truth, right? And um, I just really found myself not actually enjoying higher education much anymore as a result of what I feel like is mission drift. So because this is not a podcast on trying to unpack what's happening in higher education and it's a podcast on pivoting, I'll stop there in terms of my professional push factors out. But I will also name because so many, we're, we're not just professionals, we're also personal humans, right? So I changed along that 20-year journey as well. I had two children um, I have two, two girls under the, uh, you know, my, my daughters are three and five, so they're still very small. And several things were happening. One, I started noticing that I was coming home without much humanity or energy left to parent. And there's nothing left in the tank by 5.15, by 5.30. I also wasn't coming home at 5.15 or 5.30, at least two weeknights a week and once on the weekends, because in order to be a successful student affairs leader, you have to be on the student biorhythm. And that got a lot less attractive for me as a parent, right? And then, um, so that's a, that's a me thing that, that led to the value proposition of student affairs work not equaling out for me. The other issue was I had moved a lot in that 15 to 20 years, right? For my own education and for jobs. And very reasonably, my, my wife and partner was like, how are we going to do this? Because the chance that you stay dean of students and presidential advisor on diversity and equity at Cornell until you're 65 and can afford to retire is 0.0% chance because this, this job is a heart attack in the making. And that's, that's not meant to be a call out of 
of Cornell or that job specifically. That's any of those roles at this point in time, right? So I didn't have a 20, I was 42 years old uh, upon, you know, trying to figure out how to exit. I didn't have a 23-year sustainability strategy, but I also didn't want to move every five years again. And I don't think unless you get to Boston or DC or a couple of very specific markets, the idea that you can continue to you know, live multiple chapters of your higher ed leadership life without f- physically relocating in big ways, I, I was just done. I was done with that. I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't want to do that to my children. I didn't want to do that to my wife or myself. So these are the kinds of multifactorial problems that kind of led me to start looking left and looking right and getting my head out of the the fatigue and the sand and asking some, what color is my parachute questions to reference that career discernment toolkit, working with a therapist. And I realized, and this is the pivot piece and where your audience is probably going to lean in a little more, what is my most marketable skill set outside of higher education? So discernment question for listeners that are still in the industry and are thinking about getting out. I think having a really ruthless self-analysis, high EQ dialogue with yourself about what your skills are and what their marketability outside of higher education, campus-based higher education work, because ed tech is thriving, right? There's You can be education adjacent, but um, once you want to get out of campus life, then doing a skill set analysis. And then the second piece that I tried to figure out, because I went and did some informational interviews with corporate leaders, and they gave me some cold, hard truth. Um, And that was, well, if you wanted to pivot and pivot down several levels, you might be able to do this. But if you want to pivot at the level of leadership you are in higher education, they just said, it's just not going to happen. I mean, they weren't even, they didn't even crack the door open slightly. They were like, no, sir. So, And I was like, why? And, you know, like, I, of course, asked the, the tell me more about that question, even though inside I was like dying on the vine when they would give me this news and these informational interviews. And, and they were like, well, um, I uh, they, they said, because most campus based leaders, after all their, the work they've done, don't have outcomes that are measurable, deliverables that they can talk about that happened in quick order that translate over to the way work and productivity gets measured in corporations. So what I, so what I did is, it took me two years. It took me two years to pivot. So let me just name this. The, the pivot plan, because it didn't, I, I couldn't, I couldn't pivot when I wanted to. It took me two years to execute. And it started with some truth telling to myself and getting people who were willing to be brutally honest with me from corporate. And I did the skills inventory. And then I did the deliverables inventory. What kinds of things do I have numbers I can put to? What kinds of things can I develop an um, OKR around, an, an objective and a key result where I can actually codify, quantify the effect of me and my team's labor on a problem. And then I had to take that big list and scratch everything off of it that didn't translate into corporate, which actually was like three-fourths of the stuff, right? This is this is the issue. And, and I and I don't want to crush dreams. I'm trying to just be super honest about what it means to codify work. So if I said that I did all of this work that really fell under you know, how we manage crisis in the residence halls. Not that useful for most corporations, right? So I had to figure out how to capture value on things that had currency in the sector I was trying to pivot to. And I was trying to get into tech because I was looking for um, a growth sector so that I didn't pivot into something that was going to leave me stranded in a few years. And I was also trying to pivot into something where if I made one move to a reasonable market, 
for tech that I would not have to move my family again. And tech as an industry seemed most amenable to me being like, look, I'm based in Austin, Texas. If y'all want my talent, that's the deal. You're going to have to strike. You're going to have to let me work from Austin. And there was many other industries. Like if I pivoted to hospitality, I don't know if that would necessarily be the case, right? You know, or, or healthcare. So I was really, these are some of the constraints in my pivot, which were unique to me. I needed to stay high level because of earning power. And I also had one marketable skill set as opposed to people in other parts of higher education. I had my diversity skill set because all of my crisis management stuff didn't translate well. And then I, I needed to, I really don't want to move my family anymore. So I was looking really primarily at tech as a sector. So, and I can share more, but I want to pause and give you a chance to ask an, a, a tuning question, right? To, because I'm willing to be as transparent about process and strategy, but you, you let me know what's most useful to your listeners at this point. Pivoting out of EDU, we'll be right back after this quick message. Coaching Through It is a podcast hosted by myself, Laura Pasquini, and Julie Larson. We're two former higher education professionals who made the jump to corporate life and now are learning what professional coaching is all about. Coaching Through It will offer you and explain what coaching actually is and how it might help your pivot out of EDU and support your career transition. We'll be digging into coaching tools, techniques, and resources that we find useful. Not only will you get these tools, but you'll find out what's useful for you and where you're at in your career. We're both career coaches and support transitions and pivots. And we have a number of other coaches you might want to learn from as we feature them on interviews on the pod. And let's get real. We've been friends for over a decade, so you might just hear an episode or two of us coaching one another. And a bit of real talk of what it's like to be in the world of work and how transitions and pivots happen today. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts as we'll be coaching through it. And now back to the show. Yeah, no, I think, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for sort of giving us the soup to nuts uh, story there. I think what you've shared is going to be very valuable for our listeners, particularly, you know, some of the things that I, that I picked up on one was that you left when you noticed the change, both the institutional change, sort of the environmental change, but also a change in yourself. You know, that's something that we see a lot in the in sort of the Facebook groups that Jamie and I are part of, uh, you know, some of the, the, the consulting uh, workshops that we've done, you know, that's something that I, I think will resonate well, because I'm not sure folks are sort of in tune with that as much. And to hear that from somebody who has at, who was at and is currently at your level um, will be really good. I, I wanted to dig in a little bit and I realized that, you know, our podcast is about pivoting, but I think it's, I think it's, there's going to be some sort of cathartic, uh, catharticness, if that's a word, uh, for the folks who are listening, uh, particularly at sort of the, the individual contributor level. When you talked about sort of the landscape of student affairs changing, you know, I, I've said this many a time. I went into student affairs because I want, and, and I, you know, I wanted to be a student developer. That was who I was. That was yes. what I was doing. Uh, that's what I, you know, I'd started in residence life, worked in campus activities and fraternity and sorority life. And it was all about developing the emerging adult, right? And I think Jamie, you know, shares that as well. Um, and, and the reason I got out was because I didn't want to be a vice president. I knew that that next level up was going to be, and I wasn't a dean of students. I, you know, I was, I was an assistant dean, but in the student development office, but I was being mentored by our vice chancellor who said, your next step is student conduct, student judicial, Title IX, Violence Against Women Act, you know, all the things that are critical on a college campus, but also was not what I wanted to do and knew that I didn't want to do that. And so when you talked about sort of the, the firefighting and the broom and dust plan, I, dust pan, I think that that will resonate really well. And I'm curious why you think student affairs 
other than sort of the media exposure, maybe why you think it's changed so much from what has been traditional, the student development to much more of the crisis management sort of legal piece. I, I, I said many a time, like I, I, I got a doctorate and I wondered sometimes if I should have gotten a JD to be a vice, a vice president, because I wondered if my job was going to be solely around legal implications, but why do you think that shift has happened? And, and based on that, you know, what advice you might have for that individual contributor who is out there who just started in a resident director position or a Greek life coordinator position and is like, whoa, wait a minute, this is not sort of the trajectory that I was thinking it was going to be. Um, so maybe hitting both of those would be really good for our audience. Sure, sure. Well, first first and foremost, to the folks that are in uh, an IC role, uh, to use a corporate term, um, but you know, in the, in the earlier part of their career journey in student affairs, Massive shout out to you, right? You're doing really important work. You are changing lives and you're uniquely positioned to build relationships with students. And it's really the relationships that drive the transformation. And you are in one of the hardest professions uh, I can possibly think of at this point. Um, so shout out to you and you know, make sure you invest in yourself and take care of yourself in, in, in the journey. Tom, the, your question is, is, is really astute. For me, a couple of things are going on here. One, there are some metastructural conditions that are changing around higher education that are bringing higher ed into a crucible moment where it either transforms or dies. What I mean by that, so there's, you know, there's approximately 4,000, 4,200 baccalaureate granting institutions in the United States, right? These are institutions where you can get what they used to call a four-year degree. That doesn't, that, that term is nonsensical because most Americans don't take four years to get their bachelor's degrees, right? There's about 4,200 baccalaureate granting institutions in the United States. And the media tends to focus on just a couple hundred of these institutions in telling the story of higher education. The media tends to focus on residential research one institutions as emblematic of the entire industry. Residential research one institutions are a tiny minority of what's happening in higher education. The majority of the institutions are either tuition dependent private institutions or public institutions that are not R1s that don't have the big money coming in from the federal government, the big money coming in from football, the big money coming in from uh, alumni that went on to be, you know, mega gajillionaires and gave the hundred million to solve the problem. Really, the rest of the publics are regional comprehensives or, you know, other other institutions that, uh, whether they're private or public, they sit much closer to the crisis that faces the industry. And the crisis is really that um, costs have skyrocketed. Um, The outcomes of getting a baccalaureate degree have not kept pace uh, with the cost. Families are pulled way back and are rethinking, and have been since 2010, since the the Great Recession, um, rethinking the value proposition of where they want to pay for their children to get educated. And we face an enrollment cliff, right? Sometime in the next few years, there is going to be a precipitous drop-off in high school completers. And every EM person out there knows this, and they've been looking and waiting and watching this nightmare juggernaut approach, right? And so the enrollment cliff is only going to exacerbate the tensions that already exist in the industry. So this is a political economy read of the pressures that face higher education. In that crucible, the industry has been trying to find ways to deliver on value um, and doing things that historically they just didn't do. So for example, they're trying to be much more responsive to their students. This is actually a good thing that student voice is taken way more seriously now. My first 
decade in student affairs. Yes, it was all about student development, right? I mean, we all read Rich Keeling's Learning Reconsidered when it came out. And it was like, boom, you know, like it was like speaking our truth. And we're like buying that pamphlet and handing it to faculty members, you know. And but if you think about student affairs in the early 2000s, student, every VPSA in the country was trying to convince the rest of the university that student development was important. Right. There was a huge question of why are you here? You're just a cost center. Right. And you're, and, and you're not really graduating students and you don't help with enrollment. Like, and that is not what's being argued anymore. Student affairs is vitally important. Presidents understand how important their VPSA is, because if you don't have a good VPSA, the president ends up losing their job. Like, so the question of relevance has been solved as campuses become much more consumer facing and consumer responsive. And students are the consumer. And so student affairs really is the mediating arm between the campus and the consumer. The problem and the reason student affairs work has become so difficult is in this sudden pivot towards actually caring what's happening with your consumers. The students are are pointing out that universities spent the first couple hundred years not caring. And so from everything from equity gaps to service delivery problems to you know, just uh, scope drift around what's being provided or not being provided in counseling centers to uh, the the arms race around climbing walls and beautiful glass gymnasiums to, to, to luxury dining plans versus meeting the full cost of attendance. There's no easy answers on what it means to be consumer responsive in university life today, because outside of the, a few hundred campuses, most of them are actually really, really budget thin. And so, you know, the market dynamics are not in favor of the university. They're having to become much more responsive to their client, their, which is the student. And student affairs really is the, is the connective tissue between the cabinet and the deans and the, the students themselves. And it's, it's in the connective tissue that we're feeling the, the slow motion riot that is the sea change that we're living through. And at the end of that sea change, we're going to be looking at something very, very different. By 2030, a huge amount of American families are just going to be opting out of the models that they're choosing today and choosing skill-based accreditation programs that take 18 to 24 months that slot you into a job that the, that the labor market data says currently we can't fill. You know, so... Um, I, you know, and I believe that very strongly. I know it's a futurist prediction and people have been getting that wrong for, for a long time, but more and more data seems to be pointing in that direction. So that's a little bit of my armchair, you know, uh, read of, of uh, the political economy of higher education and why things have become so hard for student affairs. But, but because I don't want to play the smallest violin in the world, I also think it's important to point out that if you go to a convening of faculty anywhere in the country, they will talk about how their profession has also become really, really difficult and potentially miserable in the last 10 years as well. Yeah. Um, so it, it's it's the whole industry and it's student affairs in potentially a more exaggerated way. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that as well, because I know for, for Tom and I, we kind of did our pivot just, I know for me, I pivoted out of the student affairs role into a faculty role in 2015 when I actually had my eldest daughter for many of the reasons you explained as to why you made a pivot as well. So I sort of sensed some of those things happening. And then to your point, noticed some of the changes in, in the faculty space. But, um, but yeah, thank you for articulating that. About your pivot, it sounds like, you know, it took you a couple of years to do both your skills and deliverable inventory, which I really love um, the descriptors you use 
particularly for the deliverables inventory, because Tom and I, really because people ask for it, we help people review their resumes or revise their resumes. And even after they've had some, I mean, this is with all respect in the world, but some of our folks have had like a higher ed career person give them resume feedback. But yet when we receive, when we're reviewing theirs, there's still not clear articulation of, of metrics. And so we're having them, you know, do that with us. And I've even, you know, reviewed applications where it's the same thing. And so kind of all of the things we've, we've been taught don't always necessarily apply in the same way. But at any rate, the deliverable inventory, super important. And taking your time is important too. I mean, we get people who like, yeah, we're really frustrated that they haven't found a new position in, you know, a month or two. And, you know, for me working higher ed adjacent, I mean, sometimes we get three to 500 applications and it's hard to stand out among those, you know? Um, so, so you have to be willing to take time. What are some things though, that you would, you know, suggest to people as they're trying to find positions? Are there, are there specific ways in which you located them? You also mentioned informational interviews, which is really good. Um, and then anything else you might offer to stand out uh, yeah. among the other applicants. And, and Vijay, I was hoping that, uh, you know, on top of that, sort of like an aside to that question, maybe also talking about, because again, you talked about the informational interviews. How do people get the foot in the door? Because that's the biggest like hurdle I think folks have. You know, I'm, I'm sort of recommending like LinkedIn and, and make connections. But, you know, how do the people get the foot in the door, especially if they don't have necessarily sort of the executive level experience that maybe somebody like you did? Sure, sure. So a few things that I found to be helpful, and, you know, I I can only share from from my lived experience of this, so I don't want to offer anything as authoritative or comprehensive, but just stuff that I found that I did and that I thought was helpful on my journey. So it did take two years. And some of the things I did in that two years, I'll, I'll talk about informational interviewing is one thing, and I'll delve into what that means and maybe how to, how to actually get some of those. Uh, second is learning a new language. And so I'll explain what that means. And then the, the third piece is, is actually being pretty strategic about the projects I took on on campus in order to then feed the pivot. So three, you know, and there's probably more that I did, but I'll just talk about those three things, right? So, so let me, I'll do them in reverse order. When I um, got all of that bad news from those corporate leaders, when I first got this idea that like, maybe I'll pivot into doing corporate diversity work. And I was very naive about it. And I was like, of course, they're going to want me. I'm the presidential advisor for diversity at Cornell. And it's like, you know, I got some slap, 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 rude awakening moments, right? And I was like, oh, okay. Ate ate, uh, a couple of humble pies and had to think about this issue of deliverables. And when I did my inventory, the inventory didn't take long and, and trying to size up the deliverables didn't take long. The reason it took two years is because it's a process to generate value. So I started to look around campus for projects that I could get myself involved in that would have measurable outcomes in a relatively short period of time that had value in the corporate space. And from a DEI standpoint, what has value in the corporate space is anything connected to the workforce, right? So I, and and part of my desire to pivot also meant the desire to take on a whole bunch of extra work, right? So anything, any room I could find a way to talk my way into to say, I can do that for you. I can help you with that. I can build the slide deck. I can help with data modeling. 
I can offer expert advisory and consultative services on your college's attempt to do a climate survey after that big meltdown with your faculty. I, you know, like, so taking that, how can I be of service? Um, and, and trying to, you know, take, I, I took on a bunch of extra work. And so this is where to the higher ed folks out there that are listening, you have to fuel your own pivot. And that means you might be grinding, you know, in the mornings and the evenings before your, your work. And I know our work is expansive on campus. So it was hard, right? It was a hard two years, but what I was able to do was populate my resume very strategically with things that came out of pivot planning, you know, like, like activities that I got myself into specifically to set up my pivot. I used my campus environment, right, to, to get the kinds of experiences I needed to get out. And I don't feel bad about saying that because I was actually doing work that the campus needed. It's not like I was making up these projects, right? These are, these are things that the campus wanted and needed. And so I did them in addition to my, my job and, and was able to build out elements of my resume to get that extra 90 seconds look from a recruiter so that they would take my candidacy more seriously, right? So, so that's the first tip is... Um, whatever sector you're looking to pivot in and the kinds of jobs you're looking at, read those job descriptions very carefully, figure out what you're missing. And if there's any way to get even, anything even remotely close to that into your campus experience, build a plan and do it. And if that means that heavy lift of clocking some extra hours because you volunteered, it's what it takes, right? It's what it takes to set up the pivot. Second thing I think is this uh, tip of learning a new language. When I look at higher ed people's resumes who are trying to pivot into tech, uh, they're doing exactly what I did in my first part of trying to do this and not succeeding. I told the story the way I wanted to tell the story. And I was hoping they would understand what my value was. And nobody could understand it unless you were in student affairs, right? I, after 20 years, I was writing in complete student affairs, higher ed ease. And my CV at that point, especially because you know I have my doctorate, I was teaching, I was publishing, I was on the conference circuit. I had like an eight-page CV, right? So I was taking that and I was like maybe slapping a couple of numbers on page one and sending it out. First of all, if you've got... So for me, I had to learn the hard way. At the level I was at, I got two pages. If you are in the first 10 years of your career, you probably get a page. So you get a page, maybe you get a page per decade. I would keep that as a rule. <laughs> and so... Uh, cut your resume way down and tell your story in the language of the sector you're trying to pivot into. So I had to tell my story in tech and I didn't know tech. So I learned that language by making a list for myself. I started reading Harvard Business Review, started reading Forbes, and I, I subscribed to five tech podcasts that I listened to religiously every week. And there was moments that it was so painful because I never knew whether I was going to be able to pivot. And I was listening to like podcasts like IT Visionaries. And I'm like, oh God. But I, I picked up so much of the lingua franca of tech by trying to listen to the CTO at an AI company talk about the problems they're experiencing. And they were using so much language I didn't know. And I kept a little pad and I wrote down the words I didn't know. And I Googled for them. And I slowly built up a new lexicon and a new syntax pattern that allowed me to then write my resume if, if, if I needed to write cover letters in their language, right? So I was still operating with the value I was bringing, but I was telling my story in a way that was native and resonant to them. And that was so important because it started to slowly turn the tide for me in getting those first round interviews and getting the recruiter callback. And the last piece is the informational interviews. So I'll explain this. And if this is a retread for some of your listeners, my apologies, but I actually find that even within, so let's say you're not looking to get out of higher education and you're just listening to this podcast out of morbid curiosity. Um, 
informational interviewing is misunderstood within student affairs, higher education leadership as well. I, I used informational interviewing extensively to level up my career when I when I identified as a student affairs professional. And most student affairs people don't do this well. They don't network well and they don't informational interview well. So part of the, part of this is that we don't get taught to do it. And, and so, it, you know, how do you figure it out if no one's teaching you to do it? And we have to be more honest about what's going on behind the scenes. But the process of informational interviewing is about finding a way to get a 30-minute conversation with someone who sits in a role or in adjacent to a role that you are interested in. And you're really only get about going to get about 30 minutes from busy people. And in that time, your goal is to have done enough research on them, their industry, and the things that they do, that the questions you ask them, because they're going to say, okay, it's it, time for the informational interview. What do you want to know? And you're going to be, they're not going to sit there and like help you, right? So when you're faced with what do you want to know, my goal was always, how do I get three questions that not only garner me important information that I need, but communicate my brand in a way that's so impressive that they turn around by the end and go, how can I help you? Right? Because when people, when business leaders notice that someone has actually done the work and that they come off as smart and astute and savvy, they might turn around and say, how can I help you? You don't get that every informational interview, but you get it one out of three if you put in the legwork to come off as different and well-researched. And so my pattern with informational interviewing inside of higher ed and outside of higher ed was always to actually use it to communicate my brand just as much as I was using it to learn. And so when I give an informational interview, if the person's first question to me in a 30-minute interview is, can you tell me about your career journey and how you got to where you are? complete waste of a question. You, you've basically allowed them to take the first 15 minutes of a 30-minute interview and tell you an idiosyncratic story that doesn't help you get to where you need to be. Because my journey has really very little to do with your journey. If you can extrapolate tactics out of my journey, they might not be contextually relevant to your life or your way of thinking, acting, and doing, right? So like, I, I, I tell everybody, don't ask that question. <laughs> so ask more tactically informed questions. So you can ask a question like, I've heard in tech these days, when you post a senior coordinator job, you're getting four to 500 resumes within five to seven business days of the job posting. When you talk to your talent acquisition teams and your recruiters, which resumes get the recruiter call back? What are you noticing on those resumes that's getting the recruiter call back? Why is the recruiter slowing down enough to make a call back on those resumes? You know, like, that's an interesting question, right? To, to try and get at what that company's logic model is on their talent acquisition funnel, right? There's what's your top of funnel filtering look like? Are you using AI or are, are you, is it a recruiter going through by hand? If you're using AI, how do you set the search words? <laughs> yeah, like, because really then what I need to do is modify my LinkedIn and my materials so that they hit your filters, right? And, and this is something that a leader generally doesn't get asked in an informational interview. It might provide a more uh, relevant and interesting conversation. Or um, you could ask, if you do a bunch of research, you could say, hey, I hear that there's a major disruption happening right now in your sector because of the changing regulations and laws around you know, the EU um, and privacy laws. You know, For you and your work, how have you gone about retooling your own understanding of the law so that you can be successful in this new legal climate. You know, if that's something where you have 
you're higher ed, you're working in either as a counsel in higher education and you're looking to get out or you're working, you know, counsel adjacent and you're looking to use that skill set, ask them something about the way to navigate the changing legal landscape in their business. Or, you know, so I think that there's just a way to dial in on issues of importance to business leaders so that they feel like they're engaged in a conversation with a colleague rather than doing you a favor of so this charitable download. And, and I think one of the things that I, I'm noticing about what I'm communicating is it's really calibrated to higher level informational interviewing when you're talking to somebody in a leadership level role. And Tom, you were specific in nudging me about like, hey, you know, what about folks who are earlier in their journey? And I think that one of the things I've seen people do who are really clever about this is if you're an assistant director in Res Life and you're looking to pivot out, there are actually a number of companies that you can touch as a result of the software that ResLife uses on your campus. So who is your customer support rep, your CSR, for your residential management software, right? Whether you're on Star Res or whatever you're using, who's your CSR? Ask to meet with them. Your CSR will probably give you an informational interview because you're their client and you, you can ask them for things that you can't ask other people for. Who is on the go-live team for the new you know, analytics software being loaded by IR if you're in that space? Or who's on the go-live team for the predictive analytics software and academic advising? Get on that team because on the go live team, you have a whole lot of interaction with the consultant that's managing the relationship between the software and your and, and your campus. And it's in that space that you build a relationship with the consultant. I did this many times, right? Like I uh, I heard that Salesforce was giving a presentation on Cornell's campus um, about CRM applications in higher education. And I just bootlegged my way into that room. I wasn't invited, but I heard about it. And I like I called the a departmental administrative assistant who was hosting it. And I was like, hey, sweet talk, sweet talk. Any way I can get in there? She's like, I'll add you to the invite. And so I'm sitting in the back of the room. And my goal was to ask one question that got this person to notice me, right? So it's an informational interview. They just don't know it's an informational interview. And I asked the question that stood out Afterwards, I walked up to him and he was like, hey, that was a really great, great question. I said, you know, would you be willing to, to talk more? I really loved learning from you today. We got a call two weeks later. I used that call to make a contact out of that person. And then when, I, when, when the right job opened up at Salesforce, I, I called him and I said, can you help me submit through the internal employee net, referral network rather than the external system? Because I wasn't getting anywhere applying through the external system. I was just getting immediate rejections. And so the minute employees started putting me in as a referral, I got a recruiter callback every time. So the, so you, the informational interview turns into a way for you to get on the back end of the employee referral submissions. And if you're in higher ed going, what are they talking about with employee referrals? Most corporations give privilege to applications that come in through employee referrals. This is extra big in tech. Um, and because there's oftentimes finder's fees that you get paid if you refer someone and they actually get the job. Um, but uh, if you get referred by an employee, then the recruiter that's tapped for that search will almost always engage a with you in a conversation in ways that you just don't get when you apply cold from the outside. So yeah. that was a lot. You, I'll turn it back <laughs> over to you to, to dial in what, what else is useful to share. Well, actually, I think, uh, you know, that what you've shared with us, uh, you know, I think will resonate quite well with the listeners, both at an, at an individual contributor or an executive level, uh, you know, and, and is, will reiterate many of the things that Jamie and I have shared both on the podcast, but also our guests have shared in terms of, 
you know, thinking about the language and, and full transparency or a little, maybe a little bit of a cheat uh, for folks on our blog, uh, you can find a terminology a translator uh, for those who are interested in translating their resume. You talked about making sure that, you know, metrics are part of, part of that and, and really dialing in both your cover letter and your resume and your interview to what it is that the company or what, or the industry is looking for. So I think that those all really, really resonate well. Uh, something that I really loved uh, that, that you talked about is, is, you know, part of this is building your brand and communicating your brand. And I think that, you know, we talk about that in higher education. We talk about building your brand. We might not use those, those actual words. Um, but I think that those are things that, that we need to do better at. It's not just a matter of building your brand in student affairs or building your brand in higher ed. It's about how do you then communicate that brand if you're choosing to, to make a pivot. And so, uh, Vijay, I think that the things that you shared have been fantastic. And I think that our listeners are going to be really excited no matter what level they're at. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Really appreciate the opportunity to have you on our show. For me, you are definitely a get to have on the show because of your background and your experience and, and the roles that you've had, uh, plus, you know, sort of having chatted with you many moons ago when you were at Fullerton. So really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. For everybody that's out there listening, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate your attentiveness and appreciate you subscribing to our, our Pivoting Out of EDU podcast. If you need to get in touch with Jamie or myself, or if you have questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us at pivotingoutofedu.com. Otherwise, we'll see you next week for another episode of Pivoting Out of EDU. Thank you for listening to Pivoting Out of EDU. For show notes and more information about the podcast, visit pivotingoutofedu.com. If you're thinking about pursuing an opportunity outside of your campus-based position or know someone who is, visit our website for advice and resources and learn Jamie and Tom's private consultations offered to support you in your journey. If you think this podcast was awesome, please consider giving us a five-star rating. <laughs>